and get-together of the Jewish Learning Exchange. It's a unique, uh, it's a unique and uh, a very important evening. We're getting started a whole new class and bringing people together that have been now separated with time and with different experiences and bringing them all together to enjoy one another and to enjoy some of a small fraction of Hashem's beautiful Torah, HaKadosh Baruch's beautiful Torah. <coughs> and the evening has many interesting features to it as w they will unfold. The class, the get-together afterwards, the exchanging of ideas and getting to know one another, all very constructive and good things. For any of you that don't know me, I just want to introduce myself as Yitzchak Kersner. We have a class here on Thursday night in Jewish philosophy, which starts at 8 o'clock. If any of you are interested in that kind of a class, we have more particulars. You can ask after the class about it. The class that I usually give in terms of Parshas HaShavua, in terms of the portion of the week, I don't usually work on an overview kind of basis, in other words, of just getting a skim all of the whole portion. What I usually do is I try to select one particular topic or one particular very important point within the portion of the week and delve into it and then make it relative to modern times. This week's portion is Parshas B'Shalach, which depending upon which Chumash you have, if you have the, uh, the Hertz Chumash, it can be found on page 265. That's where we'll be starting from. If you have the Chumash that's in all Hebrew, it's in the second section of this on page 33. Okay, again, in this, in the Hertz one, it's on page 265 at the beginning of the page. And in this Chumash, Okay, if you have this all Hebrew Chumash, it's on page 33, and the portion of the week is called Parshas B'Shalach. By and large, the portion of this week, Parshas B'Shalach, deals with um, one main occurrence that is really one of the most principal points in our history, and that is the Jewish people's going out of Mitzrayim, going out of Egypt, and they're crossing the Red, the Red Sea. The tremendous miracle where they went into the Red Sea and HaKadosh Baruch Hu God split the Red Sea to give them passage through the Red Sea. The Egyptians that were running after them, behind them, also followed into the, into the Red Sea but upon them Hashem closed the waters, God closed the waters upon them. And really the point that the topic or the area that I want to concentrate on tonight is not so much the Jews going out of Egypt and not so much the Jews crossing of the Red Sea, but the period of time that took place, the different things that took place between those two periods of time just so that we should get the calendar in order 
the Jewish people left Mitzrayim on 15 days in the month of Nisan. That, that's when they left. According to most commentaries, they got their permission to leave at night, but they didn't actually leave till the next morning. That was on 15 days in Nisan. They traveled in the, into the desert, and on the seventh day after they left Egypt, they stood in front of a body of water called the Yamsuf, or commonly called the Red Sea, and they had nowhere to go. On their right side and on their left side, on their right side and on their left side, they were encompassed by ferocious animals. Behind them, they had the troops of Egypt running after them, trying to get a hold of them. And in front of them, they had a body of water. They were, for all intents and purposes, trapped on all sides. And the critical question that comes up when we learn this portion is that it is very, very obvious that when we left Egypt, when we left Mitzrayim, we didn't really leave that we were totally free yet. Because even if we are to assume that when they left, they were under the impression that they were free forever, but a few days later, they already became aware of the fact that Egypt hadn't given up on them, and Egypt was going to run after them. So it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a paradox how we have this. In other words, on the one hand, God punishes Egypt with ten plagues and takes us out the Yadrama with a strong hand, with a, a mighty hand, with a proud hand, takes us out of Egypt, and once we're out of Egypt, we enjoy freedom for a couple of days, and then all of a sudden we have the fright, and we have the, the, uh, the, the uh, fear, the tremendous fear all over again that maybe we're returning. Why? Because Parai, because King Parai is running after them, he wants to catch them and he wants to drag them back to Egypt and teach them a lesson. And the question that comes up is, why did HaKadosh Baruch why did God break up Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim in such a way, the coming, going out of Mitzrayim? In other words, when they left Mitzrayim, it was not a complete job. When they left, it wasn't complete yet. Parai could still run after them, could still threaten them, could still bring them back, and it was only completed with the cherry on top, if you want to say, when they finally reached the Yamsuf, when they finally reached the Dead Red Sea, and there the Jew passed through, the Egyptian drowned, and that was the end. But before that, it wasn't really over. If you're entertaining in your mind that I'm being petty, and who cares if it happened all at once in one day or if it was spread over a beginning and an end of one and seven, the indication is that it's very crucial, this breaking up. Because we know that our Yontif of Pesach, our Yontif of Passover, is broken up very much in the same way. We have a day of Yontif, the first day of Yontif, which is very similar to Shabbos in, in all its laws and restrictions. It's very much like Shabbos. Then we have a period of time which is called Chalashomayit, which is a quasi-period of Yontif. And then when it comes to the seventh day, that's another real day of Yontif. Now what makes the first day and the seventh day so unique? So this we know, because the first day is Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim, our going out of Mitzrayim, and the seventh day, and the seventh day was the splitting of the Red Sea. So if we want to demarcate the most important times of going out of Mitzrayim, it is clearly put into two categories. The first day is Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim, the going out of Egypt, and the seventh day is Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea.
Now, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if God would have chosen that when we left Egypt, that he would have made a complete job on Pare and his troops, if he would have sent some kind of an epidemic into his troops in Egypt, so that it would have been incapable of them to ever run after us, and we would have ran to our freedom with no threats, we would only have one day Yontif. We would only have the day to, of the first day Yontif of Pesach to celebrate. The seventh day wouldn't fit in, because the only important date is then Yitzhiyah's time, our leaving Egypt. But being that it was split into two parts, our leaving seemingly free, that's one day Yontif, our finally becoming completely free, and no Ampare and King Pare and his all his soldiers are not a threat anymore becomes the seventh day and it becomes a special day of Yantif. Why was it broken up into two parts? Why was it broken up into two parts? That's the essential question. And now let's return to the text and start delving into some of the points of the text and hopefully we'll come up with a meaningful answer to this question. Let's look in the text. And it, when Parai sent out the people, that refers to the Jewish people, the HaKadosh Baruch didn't allow us to take the way that goes by the land of Plishtim, because that path is very close to Egypt, because God said, maybe the people will have a change of heart, when they will see the possibility of battle coming, and they will be tempted to go back to Mitzrayim. Again, what's the Pasuk saying? It came to pass when Pari sent the people out of Egypt, the course that they took, the path that they took into the desert was one where God purposely veered them away from borders of Egypt in order that they should not be tempted due to the different dangers of the desert to want to return to Egypt. This is what the first Pasuk says. And we're going to go back to the very first words of this Pasuk, of this passage, and examine a few interesting things. The first word in this Pasuk is Vayahi, which means, and it came to pass. The Talmud tells us that whenever we use the word Vayahi, it is an introduction to a situation that's less than pleasant. In other words, it is a call, or in other words, it gets us attuned that something bad is happening, something painful is occurring. In the language of the Chazal, Vayahi ain't a Elolosh and Tsar. Vayahi is a language of Tsar of pain. And the question that comes up is that what is being described here is far from pain. The Jew is finally, after 210 years of slavery in Egypt, finally being freed. So why do we start off the discussion of how we were freed with this word Vayahi, which under normal circumstances means it has a connotation of pain to it, of a distressful situation. To complement, to compound this problem, we, if we read just another couple of words in the same Pasuk, it says Bishalach Pare, when Pare sent us out of Egypt. And the Erechayim is indignant with these two words. What do you mean when Pare sent us out of Egypt? Pare sent us out? God sent us out. In other words, every Jew believes that uh, the occurrences of history are determined and decided and controlled by God. So why does the Chumash 
our own Chumash say when Tare sent us out, when Hashem sent us out. That's the way it should say it. This is the Arachayim's. This is the Arachayim's question. And the Mechilta, a commentary on the Chumash, gives us an interesting story to answer both these questions. The Mechilta says as follows. With an, with, uh, an example, with a little story. The Mechilta says there was once a prince that was taken captive by some very bad people tortured, put into slavery, and we can imagine everything else. And the king looked high and low to find the people that were holding his son captive. Finally, the king apprehended these people, got his son free, and then put the people that held his son captive through a tremendous amount of punishment. You took my son, you treated him in such a way I'm going to show you, you're going to get it back. I'm going to revenge everything that you did to my son. And that's what the king went ahead and did. In the middle of the punishment process that the king had decided upon for these people that held his son captive, the people started yelling and screaming, have pity on us, we're sorry, it's a mistake, we didn't mean it. And they started sending all kinds of messengers to the king to have pity. And the king felt compelled somewhere during the punishment to stop. Public opinion was growing that the king should have a good heart, have some pity, and let these people go. He made them suffer enough. And the king said as follows, My son, if it was up to me and public opinion wouldn't be pressuring me, I would give it to them a lot worse than I did. But being that they're yelling and screaming and everybody else the momentum of public opinion that I should show a certain amount of grace to these people is building, it's wisest that I should stop. So even though I would want to punish them even more, I'm going to stop. So the Mechilta says in the same way, God came to us and said, if you really want to know my people, Klal Yisrael, I wanted to punish Egypt with a lot more plagues than ten. For what they did to you for 210 years of slavery and oppression, they deserve a lot worse than what they got. The only problem is that Pari is screaming. He's sounding like a very righteous person. He's coming to the realization that God is right and I'm wrong. He's yelling all over the place. And what is it going to look like if God doesn't have mercy? If God doesn't have mercy on people, so how can you expect other people to have mercy? So it doesn't look good. So God says, really, really, they deserve a lot more. But being that they're talking in this merciful way and begging for mercy, I have to let them go. So the Mechilta incorporates this into the Pasuk, into the passage. Vayahi, God was disappointed. It was distressful for God because really God wanted to punish them a lot more. But what was the problem? Bishalach Pari. Pari was already agreeing to send them. Pari was already becoming a tzadikal. He was already becoming a righteous person. So since he was becoming a righteous person, so God felt compelled that he had, to, he had to show his grace to Pari and he had to hold up on the punishment and let them go. We have to understand what this is supposed to mean. That God is compelled because Pari is yelling and screaming and he's begging for mercy so God has to hold back on punishment and he tells us really I wanted to punish them more but I have to hold back. And if you really get even more technical about it, it's a matter of time. Because even though God didn't punish them as much as he would have wanted to at this particular point, it didn't take too long. Seven days later, they were all punished. 
So what's this whole description over here? Vayahi, God has pain, he has tsar, he's uncomfortable because he wanted to punish them more, but he can't. It only took a matter of days when God did what they deserved. I mean, there's nothing worse than dying for what you've done. So it happened anyway. So what's this whole play over here? God says that he's very disappointed, he feels bad, but he's compelled to let them go. And in the end, he really, he really punished them to this nth degree anyway, seven days later. So what's the whole point? <coughs> let's skip a couple of sukkim. Just let's skip a couple of sukkim and go on to the beginning of the next chapter. Verse 1 and 2 of the, begi- of the next chapter. In other words, chapter 14. It's, if you have these, these chumashim, it's, the same, it's on the same page, it's just a few lines later. And in the Hertz Chumashim, it's the first, first two passages of chapter 14. Hashem spoke to Moshe and said, Speak unto Kal Yisrael, speak unto the people, the Yashuvu, and they should return the Yachanul of Nepi They should walk back and they should settle themselves in front of a place called Tihachiros. We'll explain what that place was all about in a minute. They Migdal Ben Hayam, it was between these two areas called Migdal and Yam, Lifne Baltzfain, in front of an idol which was called Baltzfain, Nichachai, and you should they should encamp opposite Al Hayam, near the water. What's the plot? Let's explain the plot. The the Jew left Egypt. Let's get the plot of what's going on here. The Jew left Egypt. Fifteen days in Nissan. He goes into the desert and starts traveling for a couple of days. Then God comes to them after a couple of days of traveling and, and going further and further away from the land of Egypt, okay? And then Hashem, God gives them a commandment. He says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to turn yourselves around and start walking back towards Egypt. And walk back towards Egypt and settle yourselves in a place called Pihachiris where there was a certain idol that was set up, okay? That idol was called Baal That was the name of the idol. Now, what is the plot? The plot is as follows. Paro, the king of Egypt, is going to have messengers that are going to be watching your travels. They're going to see you turning around. Obviously, you're lost. If you're lost, so we can run after you, catch you, bring you back to Egypt, and set you straight once and for all. So in other words, technically speaking, on the surface, what God was asking of us was to make a move that under all circumstances would be considered military suicide. In other words, we were asked to m- turn around, march back towards enemy territory, make ourselves appear as if we were wandering in the desert in order to actually encourage Parai to run after us. That's what God wanted. Now, to make the plot even more plausible to Parai, that Tari should fall into this obvious trap that God is planning, there's something very interesting, a historical thing, and a historical point here that's worthwhile to mention. When God punished Egypt, he punished all the different idols of Egypt. He purposely left out one. He left out Baal Why? Because he wanted that when they would go into the desert, they should turn around and settle themselves in front of Baal so that Pari would be able to say, ah, God was able to conquer all the different idols. But even in Egypt, he wasn't able to do anything with Baal this particular idol. So when they go into the desert and they meet up with Baal they get trapped. 
because Balsafrain has a power that God cannot control. Proof to the pudding, because in Egypt, Balsafrain was the only one that wasn't punished either. And now they're going into the desert and they start wandering and they can't seem to wander out of their quandary and they're settled right in front of Balsafrain. So God purposely didn't punish that particular idol in Egypt in order, in order to further make Pari believe that these people were really lost in the desert. Sure enough, it worked. Parai, the king of Egypt, took up the cue, he fell for the whole trick, and he started running after them. Started running after them. Now, this is the little story that the, that's happening here. So in other words, the people actually knew that they were bringing Egypt upon them. Okay, now, the Arachayim, one of our commentaries, explains that God did this purposely. If the Jew himself is involved in bringing Pari on top of him with God's commandment, so obviously the Jew knows that God's, God has something up his sleeve. He's doing something. In other words, if the Jew was just going in the desert and all of a sudden Pari is running after them, okay, so then they get worried. What's happening here? Today, yesterday we were free and today we're in trouble. But if God himself is the one that says, listen, I got a plan. I want you to bring Egypt on top of you. So the Jew, without knowing what in the world is going on, knows that there's something, there's some kind of a method to what God is doing, and he goes along with it. The interesting point, the interesting point that has to be made, that's interesting here is, that the Talmud comes along and tells us that you shouldn't call this place Pihachiris. Don't call it Pihachiris. Don't, please don't call it Pihachiris. Call it Pihachiris. Call this the mouth of freedom. Chiris is just the name. Chiris is freedom. So the Talmud says, we, it's a, like a play on the words, that even though it says chiros in the passage, but really what it really meant was chiros, was freedom. That the place of the Jews' freedom was in this particular place. And the question that comes up is that this doesn't make, it doesn't seem to make any logical sense. If you say that when they left, they were free, understandable. If you say that they were free after they crossed the Red Sea and all the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea, understandable. But why at this keynote place, where they made this move of moving back towards Egypt in a seemingly military suicide. So here the Talmud comes along and says, that's where these people became free. What's the special thing about this particular place where they made this military maneuver that here the Talmud comes along and tells us that's where they became free? What's so unique about that place? One last question and then we're going to investigate the whole issue. One more question and then we'll investigate the whole issue. When the military suicide maneuver was made, Pari started running after them. They're a pot shot. No problem. They're a pot shot. Okay? Now, it says in the Psukim, it says in the passages that as the Jew was running, he turned around and he saw Egypt running, getting closer and closer. At the beginning, they just looked like little specks in the, on, the, um, on the horizon. And as they came closer and closer, you know, that it was getting bigger and bigger, and the danger was becoming bigger and bigger. And they got scared. And they started, and they got very, very worried, and they started screaming. Rashi, who is our main commentary on the Chumash, comes along and tells us something that's completely out of the norm for Rashi to do. Rashi always to the most literal translation of the passages. And over here, Rashi goes off and says that when they turned around and they lifted up their eyes, you know what they saw? 
It's not that they saw Egypt running after them. They saw some kind of heavenly angel that represented the power and the lifeline of Egypt running after them. And when they saw that heavenly angel that represented the power of Egypt, that's when they got scared. As if to say, if they would have only seen Egypt, the people of Egypt running after them, not so terrible. But if they looked up and they saw the heavenly angel that represented the spiritual power of whatever Egypt stood for running after them in the forefront of the line, that's when they got scared. Now, how does any plain person, me and you, everybody in this room, how do we interpret this particular Rashi? What is this supposed to mean, a heavenly angel? What does that mean? They actually saw an angel with wings, without wings. What did it look like? How were they able to determine if it was an angel of Egypt or an angel of Syria or an angel of their own kind? Like, what is it all supposed to mean? Let's try to bring it down to real terms. What is that all supposed to mean? And why does Rashi go away from the simplest translation? The simplest translation, they saw an army coming after them. That's reason enough to be scared. Why does Rashi have to go off? Why does he have to diverge from the point and say, you know, why are they scared? Because they saw a heavenly angel. So the answer to this whole issue lies in understanding, it's a very big topic and we're only going to take one fragment of it, lies in an understanding of what Gullus, what exile is all about. What does Gullus mean? What is exile? What's the significance? What's the purpose of exile? What is it all about? The Maralmi Prague puts it into a nutshell and he says as follows. The purpose of Gullus, the purpose of a Jew being in exile is for him to be exposed to certain cultural differences of these particular nations, certain temptations, ways of life, styles of living that all these nations live by, be exposed to them, be able to have the strength of character to resist them, by that become stronger people and more committed people, and then their function is, is function of that exile is accomplished. Let us give an example, in particular when it comes to Egypt. Egypt had certain elements or certain lifestyles that were very prevalent and very unique to their people. Our Chazal say that there were two, two main ones, Avedazara, which is idol worship, and Gilei Arayas, which is the whole general area of immorality, sexual immorality. Those were the two areas that these were the, the, the lusts or the things that they used to run after. That was, that was part and parcel of Egyptian culture of the time. If the Jew is sent into that particular country and exposed to those particular elements, obviously what God is expecting of the Jew is live there, resist those things that they're trying to tempt you with, and if you have the strength of character to resist them and to stand up against them, and not to be engulfed and swallowed up by them, you develop a certain amount of spiritual strength, you become greater people, stronger people, more committed people, you've accomplished your purpose and you can leave. And it's almost like a formula. If you want to know what the purpose of an exile is, try to determine the different tests, the different, the different predicaments that you find yourself in, the different things that threaten your particular life as a Jew, 
in that exile and chances are those are the reasons why you were put into the exile to have that test to be able to resist it become stronger by resisting it becoming bigger from the resistance and not being swallowed up in the temptation and then you've accomplished your purpose now the question that comes up is the crucial one did the Jew in Egypt in the 210 years that he was there did he accomplish what he had to accomplish in the 210 years that he was there did he accomplish whatever his purpose was so the way to investigate the answer to that question would be by getting a list what are the two things that they have to resist what they stand up against idol worship and arias sexual immorality those were the two things that they had to stand up against and if they would be strong and stand up against those two things they would develop from it and be worthy to leave it and not to have to be exposed to it ever again did they live up to those purposes of exile did they or not the indication in our commentaries and in our chazal is as follows when it comes to Gila Arayas the problem of sexual immorality and living all around it the Jew was extraordinarily great in fact the Talmud tells us that there was one case of prostitution in 210 years that the Jews were in Egypt and if you know what Egypt was all about and the lifestyle and what they had to live under with all the subjugation of Egypt and everything else and they resisted this particular lust and all the immorality that were, existed in Egypt that in their condition it's phenomenal one prostitute and mind you if we investigate the life of that one she wasn't even a prostitute either in fact our Chazal tell us that somebody forcibly lived with her she never agreed to a, a sexual act that was immoral but she's considered a prostitute because she was very talkative and she drew a tremendous amount of attention to herself so in the eyes of our Chazal in the eyes of our rabbi she left the categor categories of, 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 of Jewish modesty and therefore even impossible they couldn't unravel it there were too many things drawing them freedom on the one hand everything that they saw in Egypt on the other hand uh, a spiritual leader taking them out God obviously doing things with them there was too much happening all at once so God said I'm going to give you a crash course not with philosophy not with psychology or psychiatry nothing do a couple of acts of simple faith and with a couple of acts of simple faith what you do is you make yourself completely willing if you think about it a person that does something in simple faith is he's creating a certain objectivity in his life because he's saying for the time being I'm going to take all desires, wants, calculations, figurings everything I'm going to put it aside and I'm just going to do it out of simple faith what God does when a person does that is God comes in and says I'm going to help you if you threw yourself over to me as an act of simple faith I'm going to come and help you and there was the place where they began to get their freedom that's where they started to get their freedom it's, it's almost paradoxical a person thinks he throws away his mind and he throws away temporarily all calculations and he's just acting out of simple faith so a person thinks well I'm terribly trapped in kind of, for that kind of a situation but the Talmud knows differently sometimes we get trapped we trap ourselves we trap ourselves to the extent that we've, we've hindered ourselves to be able to free ourselves. And then the only resort is simple faith. 
Let's continue. Let's go on a little bit further. They approach the Red Sea. In front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them is Egypt. Why couldn't they go to their right or to their left? A day before they would have been able to. There were no ferocious animals on their right and on their left. The day that they had to have a choice of going somewhere, God put ferocious animals on their right and left. What for? Because God wanted another act of simple faith. God said to them, you can't go to the right, you can't go to the left. Obviously, backwards you can't go because Egypt is right behind you. Okay? So what is it? The only resort. Jump in the water and I'm telling you it's going to be all right. No problem. Jump in the water and it's going to be all right. The water didn't split until somebody jumped in. Nachshim ben Aminadus took it on faith, jumped in, and when the water reached here, the water split. Take it on simple faith. In other words, what's going on over here, if we want to get a sequence of the history, when the Jew left Egypt, in one sense he had completed the exile. In terms of sexual immorality, he resisted it completely, and for that reason he wanted to go out of Egypt. But in the second sense of, of fighting and combating the ideologies and the culture of Egypt, he left mixed up. So when he left, he technically wasn't finished. What God was doing between the time that they left Egypt to the time that they reached the Yamsuf was a crash course in finishing up what they had to finish up in Egypt. How in seven days do you finish up everything that you had to do in Egypt to rid yourself of all the ideology and all the culture and all the lures of the culture? How do you do it in seven days? Simple. Simple. Acts of simple faith. And in the acts of simple faith, a person not realizing it frees himself from hindrances that he has imposed upon himself. Simple faith. So now, if we think about it, when the Jew left Egypt, it, was, it wasn't a, a completely happy situation. Because when he left Egypt, he, didn't, he took part of Egypt with him. When the Jew left Egypt, he didn't leave Egypt completely spiritually. He left Egypt and power was still involved in their lives. Pari was sending them out. Pari, the king of Egypt, was still involved with them. They were totally removed from Egypt. Egypt still had something to do with them. The proof of the pudding is that the passage, the passage tells us God didn't send them out. Pari sent them out. In other words, you're part of our people. We've made a decision. Now you can leave. In other words, you're still involved with Egypt. And he's sending you out. Vayahi. There's distress. You have to leave at that particular point for other reasons but there's pain because your mission was not accomplished by the mission isn't totally accomplished yet now technically speaking technically speaking what God would have wanted is that the Jews should have stayed in Egypt longer seeing that Egypt would have gotten more, more and more punishment and every punishment that the Egyptian got was a lesson for the Jew because everything that God punished in Egypt taught the Jew another dimension of God's strength and of God's powers and capabilities. So when God says, I wanted to punish Egypt more and more, what it really means to say is, I wanted to teach you more and more. And when you did leave, you left because you had to leave. But really, you had to be taught more lessons about who God was. And when you left, you didn't know the whole picture of who God was. And that's why when you left, you were confused. And now, the period between going out of Egypt and the period of the splitting of the Red Sea, we have to make up what wasn't done in Egypt. How is it done? There's only one way. With acts of simple faith. Now, 
Now we understand very well that when the Jew went out of Egypt, he turned around and he saw the angel of Egypt behind him and he got very scared. What does that mean, he saw the angel of Egypt behind him? It wasn't so much the physical bodies of the Egyptian soldiers that they were worried about. What it means was that they still saw the spirit of Egypt living in them. And as long as the spirit of Egypt is still living in them, they feared that they could still go back and have to finish an exile in Egypt. That's what they saw. Another seeing that angel coming, running after that, that meant the spirit, what, the, what, what Egypt stood for ideologically. And they looked back and they were able to, instead of seeing God, they were able to see an angel, the angel of Egypt. That meant that Egypt's culture still lives with them. Oh, it's Egypt's culture still lives with them. They still value it. There's still something in their heart that draws them towards it. So that means that the exile isn't really completed. If the exile is not really completed, maybe these people will be successful to take us back so that we should, be, we should have to complete it. That's when they got scared. That's when they got scared. And then God told them, if you still see an angel running after you, in other words, you're afraid that you still have the culture in you. So then what you have to do is acts of simple faith. Let's just end with one interesting thing that the Vilna Gayan says. The Vilna Gayan says, in that particular passage in the Song of Songs, the way the passage goes is, Yainasi b'chagvei hasela, we're compared to a dove that was running away from a hawk that was diving and attacking it. So the dove goes into a crevice between stones to get away from the hawk. The only trouble is that when the dove nudges itself into the crevice over there, it sees that there's a serpent in, in between the crevices. To go out, the hawk is going to kill it. To go further into the crevice, to be more protected from the hawk, the serpent is going to kill it. That's the comparison of the Jew at the time that he stood in front of the Red Sea. And then the, the passage says to say to Hamadrega, the Jew was in the lowest, lowest Madrega. He was in the lowest level, which the Goyen explains is that he wasn't even able to raise up his voice in prayer because prayer meant commitment and recognition and he wasn't completely ready for it. So what does Solomon, the wisest of all men, tell us? What was the message to the Jew in that particular plight? So these are words, beautiful words in the Song of Songs. Harini esmar ayich. Show me a showing, a picture that you once showed me. And the Vilna Goyen says that God was saying, show me an act of faith like you once showed me. What was God referring to? That when they were going through the desert, they turned around and walked back towards enemy territory. Now they stood in front of the Red Sea. They didn't know what to do. They were trapped, completely trapped. The doomsday was on them. So God says, you want to know the answer? You can't even pray anymore. You can't do anything. You're trapped. You can't pray. You don't feel comfortable with praying. Nothing. What's your last resort? Harini Esmarayach. Show me in your situation of being completely trapped an act of, that you already showed me. A beautiful vision. A beautiful picture. A Jew in simple faith. Harini Esmarayach. Show it to me once more. What did that mean? Jump in and trust me that everything will be all right. Show me that, a simple faith. And then what's the next words of the, of the Pasuk, of the passage? And I promise you that you will raise up your voice in praising God. And this we know, that right after the Red Sea split, they went over to the other side. They composed a song in which they sang the praise of God they pointed to God and said, this is our God and we will beautify him. 
A Jew on the other side, a moment before he jumped in, wasn't even able to look God straight in the face and even beg to be helped because he was afraid of the commitment. But he was ready to make an act of faith and jump into the Red Sea. When he got to the other side, he, he leaped in leaps and bounds spiritually to the point that in a state of spiritual ecstasy, he was able to say, not only do I know where I'm headed now, but this is my God and I'm going to make him beautiful and I will exalt him and this is my purpose in life. Where that tremendous jump all of a sudden? How did they jump? Here they were confused, mixed up people. They crossed the Red Sea. What was it? It was the water? It was the climate down there that got to them? What, what, what happened? The, the answer is because they just portrayed simple faith. And when a person portrays simple faith, even if he's incapable of doing anything else, but he is at least willing to portray a certain amount of simple faith, God comes back to him and says, if you're ready to show simple faith, then I will give you everything that is necessary to get yourself out of jail, to get yourself out of your spiritual imprisonment. And that's how it goes. Harini es God says to the Jew, show me a certain amount of faith that you are capable of showing. I know that you're capable of showing it. And then I guarantee you that it will come a point of spiritual clarity in your life that not only will you know where your head is, but you will dance a jig and you will sing with tremendous happiness. This is my God and I will make him beautiful. Okay, we'll stop here. Are there any questions? Are there any questions? This is the time to, I think, to think about. Even though the end result was an act that was against her will, they already labeled her a Zaina. They already labeled her that she did an immoral act.